This is Higher Ed Heroes with Dr. Sebastian Kemp and Dr. Alistair Stark. Hi and welcome to Higher Ed Heroes, our podcast series that focuses on those little things we can do in our university classrooms. The things, even if they're little, that can have a big difference. My name is Seb and as always I'm being joined by my friend and colleague, the extraordinary Al. Mm, perhaps extraordinary Al. Hi, everybody. The series is motivated by our belief that what ultimately matters to the student experience is what happens in the classroom. And yet in our universities, we get to talk a lot about course design, teaching policy, budgets. But what we don't often get a chance to do is talk about those little examples of good practice that have a huge difference in terms of the student experience. And so in Higher Ed Heroes, we want to share those examples by having conversations with great teachers about the practices that they apply in their classrooms, that bring their classrooms to life, and that they think can easily inspire others to replicate them in their own classroom. And this is a buzzword-free zone. We don't want phrases like flipped classroom, blended learning, work-integrated learning. Even research-led teaching, we can leave them all at the door. And when we hear those words which we think are better suited to our teaching committees, we have a lovely buzzer. N-O. We hope the buzzer encourages us to talk in everyday terms about those little practices. And in this series, series two, we are sticking to home turf to some extent and having wonderful teachers from our own school and our own faculty and university but we're also going further out, further from our own discipline, further from our own home turf. And we're going to other universities and even other countries in search of those good examples. And so it is today. We have a little bit of home territory and a little bit of something from beyond Australia. That's right, Al. But I think we can summarize it generally by saying that we are going to take you to Canada <laughs> because we've got two wonderful colleagues here. On the one hand, joining us for Zoom, we've got David Hornsby, who is a professor of international affairs and the associate vice president of teaching and learning at Carleton University in Canada itself. Mm -hmm. And then we have Sarah Percy, our wonderful colleague within the School of Political Science and International Studies, where Sarah is an associate professor. Sarah and David, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Really pleased to be here. So we're going to talk today about grabbing and holding the attention of students in large first-year classrooms. It's not an easy thing to do. It can be a daunting task. It certainly requires a little bit of effort, a little bit of planning. Let's begin with you, David. You use a technique in big classrooms which is based upon 15-minute segments, little bits of lectures, little bits of doing things differently. Can you start by telling us a little bit about that? Let me just premise all this by saying, you know, I, I'm a big fan of this podcast. Um, I'm really pleased to be here with you guys. I'm really excited to share the platform with uh, a fellow Canuck, uh, Sarah. So this is, this is cool. You know, I cut my teeth teaching large classes in South Africa as a, sort of a, an assistant professor. We call them lecturers in South Africa uh, at Wits University. And I, I first arrived, newly minted to the country, the context, and was thrown into a classroom of about 500 students. And, you know, in my first year teaching, I just got absolutely thrashed. Uh, I tried to do it the normal way. Uh, the students hated it. I hated myself for it. And we needed to find a context, find a way to sort of get things to resonate, get the international to resonate. And so what I figured out and, you know, through some reading, through some thinking was that actually, you know, 
students have a rhythm, right? We all have rhythms actually to our attention spans. And, uh, you know, why not apply that in a classroom scenario? So, you know, the, the standard literature says you can, you can pay attention for 10 to 20 minutes max uh, before you start dozing off. And so I thought, okay, in an hour and a half lecture, I need to mix this up, right? I can't just speak at my students about international relations. As much as I'm passionate about it, it's not gonna be equally shared. So I thought, okay, let's mix it up. Let's try something every 15 minutes, do something different. So I started the 15 minute rule, what I called, and I would change up my pedagogical strategy every 15 minutes. Not necessarily the topic matter, but the way in which I taught it or the way in which I engaged with it to try and keep students' attention. And I found that it worked really well. Give us some examples of the change up because I do the change up as well. I'm a 20 minute person. We shared some, some good examples of the, the change up in the different segments beyond the lecture. It's a mix up between the different types of ways in which you can engage people. There's YouTube, right? International relations is great. I mean, Sarah can attest. And as well, you can too, Alistair. You know, there's always something prescient going on. Um, so, you know, you can draw on newscasts, you can tap into to YouTube, you can draw on podcasts, but you can also set problem-based scenarios that get the students to think with each other, to talk to each other about things that are happening in the current moment that are of relevance to them. I would do that. I would sort of every 15 minutes uh, mix between those types of things. I would go sometimes podcasts, little, little chunks, and then get the students to talk about it. I get YouTube videos sometimes, get the students to talk about it problem-based scenarios on the on the basis of whatever's happening in the world that day, get them to talk about it. And then sometimes intermix it with, you know, then the standard uh, David speaks at you for 15 minutes. <laughs> nice. Let's bring in Sarah into the conversation. What, what do you do in order to grab and hold the attention and uh, the life within a big classroom? Just as David's, the way he started his career influences the way that he lectures, that's the same for me. So I started my career teaching in Oxford, where you don't do lectures really at all, where it's all tutorial teaching. So the first time I started lecturing was when I was already sort of four or five years into my career. I'd never actually given a course entirely by lecture. So I had to sit down and figure out how I was going to do it. And I sort of encountered a similar thing to David, which is I thought the sound of my own voice for an hour in that slot would be awful for everybody involved, probably including me. So I had to figure out what to do about it. And I did a few things. So one of the things I do is I don't do 15 minute blocks. I've tried. I just can't time keep in my head like that. But I lecture almost entirely by questions. So even in a classroom of 430 people, 500 people, I will just start out by asking the students questions. And I tell them I'm going to do it. So we set the tone right from the beginning. And the brave ones answer. I've since adopted an Oprah Winfrey style microphone so I can go up and down the aisles, which as I'm kind of an uncoordinated person occasionally causes me stress that I will trip and embarrass myself. Touch wood, that hasn't happened yet, but you know, there's still time. Um, but you can walk up and down the aisles and when you position yourself in a different spot in the lecture theater, different people will answer the questions. Whereas and if you just stand in the front, you get the same people answering all the time. As a student who started out in his first year partially doing a degree in law, what I encountered was, and that was in the German university system, was that professors in law held their lectures in a very conversational mm -hmm. style. So is that the model that you're doing? Is a conversation you yeah. have with students throughout? Well, I hesitate to use the word Socratic because it might get me buzzed. Think I so. think it's fine. Yeah, yeah it's so, but okay. that, that's and that's that's the style. I mean, that, that's Buzzer. the style you get a lot of law schools who do that. Ah, oh, you, you know, your fellow Canadian did insisted I? I buzz you there. 
So Socratic means just a sort of question and answer method of teaching. And I think that once you start doing it, and because I was used to teaching in small seminars and tutorials, that's what I'd always done. So I've just kind of adapted it for the bigger theater. And there, there, don't get me wrong, there are places where, as David does his stand and deliver for a few minutes, there are places where you have to do that as well. But wherever I can ask a question, I do. because, And I say to the students that even if you're not sticking up your hand to answer it, you're thinking about it in your head. And that helps you learn and retain the information better. And so this is part of a theme that we've had. We had James on earlier in the series saying he loves to shorten the distance between lecture and audience. I know this is something that you uh, care passionately about as well, David, getting a dialogue going that really reduces that distance and opens up the students to hear what you're saying. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, what, what really underpins that is this idea that, you know, our educational environments and the classrooms that we, you know, foster and we create need to be relevant to our students. They need to be able to associate and understand it from their own perspectives. And the ways and means of doing that is to engage them as much as possible in the material, in the content matter. Get them to constantly, as Sarah suggests, think about it, reflect, and bring it back to their own lived reality. Because in doing so, it becomes real to them. This is the problem with a lot of our disciplines, like regardless of where you sit uh, in a science faculty or, you know, engineering or even the social sciences, is a lot of the time we talk about our, our disciplines in an abstract kind of way. We talk about it conceptually or we talk about it as a sort of imagined space. We need to bring it back to our students to get them to connect it to their own life and their own reality. And I think, Sarah, that's something that you are really good at, right? Breaking these broader international relations theories, concepts down to something students can find tangible. Mm, yeah, I love doing teaching by analogy. And it ties into another of my strategies. So my PowerPoint slides are almost entirely visual. I have very few words on them. And every time I get students grumbling when they do their student evaluations, they say, but there were no words. And I felt very stressed because there were no words. And I tell them at the beginning why I do it. And I give them a lecture summary at the end of the lectures so that they, those people who are obsessed with words can have them. But I use my analogies. My favorite one involves pigs. So I pretend that we live in a society where our entire function is to raise and eat pigs. And we have lots of pig pictures. And then we use that as a way to explain the state of nature and how that translates into international relations. And it's amazing on student evaluations, people always say, I love the pigs. And occasionally someone says, could you use a different animal? And I've tried. I tried squid. It didn't have the same impact. I've tried unicorns. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work for me in the same way. Oh, you, the audience cannot see the fact that David has just turned himself into a half man, half pig on the, on the screen there. But I find that works really well. And I, I love thinking... I was taught this way by a professor where I usually give more than one analogy and I figure if one of them doesn't work for students, then the other one will so that they can bring something into tangible reality. In terms of the segments, David, do you find that, that, that there's a real circuit breaker element? As you were talking about pigs there, I started to recall, I used to do a big first year lecture in Glasgow, 500, 600, and every 20 minutes or so I would just put up a picture of a dog dressed as a Star Wars character. And I would just flick it up for 30 seconds, get the laugh, and then move on. Very rarely did I say anything <laughs> with the dog, but it was a wonderful circuit breaker. And again, it opens the student body up and they feel a little bit relaxed. Do you get that effect when you do the switch? 
I mean, yeah, inherently you have to build it in, right? You have to be really cognizant about it and and purposeful. You know, I always referred to my class as the David Hornsby show, not because of like I was something, you know, egoistic, but in part because I had to really plan it out. And I had to be, you know, inserting humor and anecdotes and little tidbits of things that made either myself human and relatable or just loosen them up, as you suggest. So there's a lot of um, a lot of that. I also, you know, in addition to humor and trying to be silly and funny on, on occasion, I would also insert music. And I wouldn't do it just randomly. It would sort of, I'd, I'd include it at, at various critical points in the lecture. So about halfway through, because I knew, you know, halfway through students were starting to wane a bit. I knew that they needed to change pace. So what I would do, and you know, this is a wonderful thing about South Africans, less so about Canadians, but more so about South Africans, they love to dance. I would flip on some song that I knew was sort of hip and cool and, uh, and just encourage them to get up and, and stretch their legs a bit. If they wanted to dance, they could dance. If they wanted to pop out and grab a coffee, they could just to create that, create that pause. Mm-hmm that would then allow them to, to recenter. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You have to sync it. You gotta, you gotta create this bit of uh, vibe going on that makes them feel a bit more relaxed. Sarah's nodding very good. Yeah. yeah. I, for me, a large lecture is a performance. And I think that that's something it's as much performance as it is teaching. And it's very hard to separate those things out. That's what makes it different from teaching a smaller lecture or teaching a seminar is that you are on stage for that period of time. And I had a very senior professor once tell me that that he thought of his lectures very much in that way, even right down to the costume that he wore. So he would he dressed very formally for his lectures, but also even thinking of himself as a character. He said, you know, that the professor who lectures is not actually me. It's a version of me who is on stage and performing. And, you know, I, I think that's a really good way of thinking about it, because fundamentally, to engage people's interests, you are on a stage. And of course, a lot of these stuff that Dave and I have been talking about in the Zoom world is, is really, really hard to achieve, because you don't get that feedback buzz that you get when you are on an actual stage in front of actual humans. Mm. I would agree that I also feel that there is a performative aspect to giving lectures in front of smaller, bigger crowds. But quite often, it's easy then to conflate the idea of performance with entertainment. And education, in a way that we, I think, offering it at university is not. And I'm not suggesting that's what you guys are saying. But how then is that performative aspect different from performance we associate with entertainment? I wouldn't suggest that I'm tap dancing while I'm lecturing or anything like that. I don't juggle. I don't, you know, I don't do performance in that sense. I'd come and see that. I think I think many people would. But I think <laughs> I think the thing about the thinking about it as a performance is that you are standing up and you're delivering information. And that happens in any performance, whether or not it's artistic or otherwise. You, you're telling some kind of story. And it's just that our stories tend to be very factual for obvious reasons. But you have to carry an audience with you. And if you're not carrying your audience, then you're you know, then then they're not learning anything. And that's a challenge. I also think that that as a result, large lecturing is not for everyone. If you are not somebody who likes performing, it's not that you couldn't do it. It's just that it will be much more challenging than if you are an incorrigible extrovert like me who doesn't mind doing that at all. Just to jump in here and, I mean, totally back up what Sarah's saying, the, the large classes are absolutely attuned for particular types of individuals. But the other dimension of this, too, is that we actually have to, I would encourage us all to rethink what the purpose of a lecture environment is. 
for so long, lectures were the spaces where you transferred disciplinary content. Nowadays, that's less relevant, right? Because students have all sorts of different ways in which they engage with the subject matter. And we want them to find their own path to engaging with our disciplines. What our educational environments and our classrooms in particular need to be are, are spaces where we've curated in some way, shape or form and we make sense of, of the information. And making sense of the information is in many respects making it relatable, is in many respects making it accessible. And so, you know, when you're inserting a bit of humor, when you're inser inserting a bit of entertainment or different ways to approach the material, it doesn't make it less rigorous. It actually makes it more accessible because, you know, people stop worrying about having to listen to every single thing that's being said and actually more engage with the, the, the broader issues. Mm. So 100% behind Sarah on that one. Can I ask about being prepared to fail? I mean, we all do first year lectures. We all do things a little bit differently. We all are on the stage and sometimes, like any actor, we fluff our lines. I mean, I've I've tried many things and just had, you know, terrible results and you learn. Being prepared to fail is part of it, isn't it? And, and sometimes you can capitalise on that. Let, let's start with you, David. You have to be prepared to fail, don't you? You do. And I mean, you know, there's been lots of circumstances where I've really fallen out flat on my face in a classroom. I mean, you know, I talked about my first your teaching and how that was an utter disaster. Even when I adapted my own strategies, you know, jokes would fall flat or, you know, technology would fail and it would be kind of left with this sort of blank space. Sometimes students just didn't get what we were, what I was talking about as well, despite all of the sort of attempts to, to make it happen uh, or, or to make it relatable. You know, ultimately you have to just be comfortable with that and realize that some days you're going to be on uh, and sometimes it's going to work really well. And other days, you know what? It's not going to be uh, that great. And you got to just keep the bigger picture in mind, right? And you have mm. to sort of keep that mm. that idea in place. Sarah, you've never fallen over with that microphone. but Not maybe. yet. My time may come. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's why it's hard for a lot of people is it does require, I'm not going to lie, it requires a lot of confidence. I use um, I have these stuffed pillow weapons that I use my for my students to act out various international relations scenarios, much to the jealousy of my children who would like to take the stuffed pillow weapons home but are not allowed to have them. They're at tax-deductible expense, so they have to stay at work. But anyway, the first time I brought out the pillow weapons, I thought this is either going to work or it's going to be an utter disaster. And it worked well. You have to tell us about the pillow weapons now. Okay. What do you do with the pillow so weapons? So the pillow weapons, there are multiple different types of weapons. And we try and enact various international relations scenarios. Particularly, I use them to demonstrate the security dilemma. So I get two student volunteers and I arm one of them with the pillow. There's a tiny little pillow throwing star. And then there's a pillow nunchuck. And I arm them and I ask them how safe they respectively feel. And then I continue to arm one of them with better and better weapons and the other one gets more and more insecure. We worry a lot more about things falling flat than students do. So there, and I completely agree with David, it is some days you come out of the lecture thinking, oh, that didn't work very well. But even the stuff that you try that doesn't work, it's just a bit different. And the students often enjoy the fact that it's a bit different. And we're often harder on ourselves. Like I've tried things that haven't worked and I've thought, oh, they hated that. And then some of them will mention that they really liked it. But I will often go back and think that didn't work for me or I don't think it explained that concept well enough. I'll change that next time I do it. What you just said at the end, Sarah, I think is really important that that's something I learned the most through is not just the failure, but like the best advice I was ever given was to say five minutes after your lecture, actually sit down and write down short notes about what worked, what didn't work. 
staple it onto or save that for next time, take it out and adjust. And I think the, the biggest asset I think you get with years of experience is that you refine. I come back to my office and I retype the first PowerPoint slide. Only once did I actually come to the lecture theater with last year's notes going, this part of the lecture was terrible at the top of my PowerPoint deck. But yeah, it's a great, it's a really good thing to do. No, I was just I fully agree. I mean, what ended up happening across my sort of lecturing time in large classes was that, you know, I started out with a script and then progressively over the years, which is sort of abandon it and and get more uh, comfortable at ad-libbing or just going with the flow and, and trying and seeing what resonated. That comes with a bit of experience and, and a bit of time. Another way to do this too that I that I think was really helpful in terms of building in that reflexivity is finding a way to, in, in, in effect, make your classroom a bit of a research project. Survey your students and ask them either midway through or at the end, what resonated? What, what worked from, with you? Think about the different types of strategies you adopt and ask them. The students will love will, will tell you very very clearly um, what worked for you, and that that really helps you. And I mean, for me, you know, I built a whole research uh, publication trajectory around large class teaching, in part because I just continually asked my students what worked and what didn't, and so I was able to, to opine thoughtfully on on how do you engage students in large classes. That's an interesting approach because I do that quite often. And at, at least initially, you get surprise and fear, don't you, from the students? He's asking us stuff about our own learning. <laughs> and you have to kind of really break them down and kind of go at that consistently. You can't just uh, introduce that quickly and hope for a response. It's a semester-long interaction, isn't it? That's right. And I think, you know, if you're going to get meaningful feedback too about about your strategies and what works and what doesn't, you have to look at it in that kind of context, in that semester long or in that module type approach, um, because you want you want the course to be considered and thought of in a holistic way, as opposed to just a snapshot of one day. Let me come in here with maybe, not sure if it's the penultimate question or the final question. You're thinking of someone who's listening to this podcast and who might be just finishing their PhD, who are just starting out to lecture, and they're facing this this what might look very threatening and challenging, this big cohort, a group of several hundred students, they've never done that before. They've got very little experience. What in your views are like some pieces of advice that think you think you would like to share with them? And I'll start with you, Sarah. I found that advice of thinking your, thinking of it as a performance and yourself as the performer to be very helpful because it's not you that's out there. It's a version. It's Professor you. It's, it's the version of you who is an academic. And also have the confidence that you know more than your students do because I think that's the, that's the scary thing when you start out is that you, you assume that someone's going to catch you out in, in the not knowing of something or that there's going to be a problem. And also to try my – I challenge myself and I have from the beginning to try to do something new every lecture just try one new thing and if it works then it works and if it if it doesn't work then you pick up it and you try it again and if you're nervous and you're feeling really uncomfortable go watch some other people give lectures who might be colleagues of yours who you know are particularly good at it because you know the three of us work in the same school and I've never seen either of you lecture and it would actually be really useful and really helpful to just go and get a picture of there's lots of different ways that you can do it you don't just have to stand up there behind the lectern and click through your slides yeah I mean all of what uh, Sarah said I would add to that that you know come into the experience and come into the classroom with a, a strong sense of humility your place is, is is one of facilitation and to guide our students to a successful completion. 
this isn't about some finding some threshold to catch them out or to um, make them sort of engage, you know, make them feel stressed out or what have you. I think this is a this is a pathway and a journey of learning that you know we're playing a small part in, and you know we need to we need to meet our students where they're at, and that requires a degree of humility, and that also requires a, a degree of or a deep commitment, excuse me, to to student success. That's fascinating and great to have similar and divergent views here. Um, if you are tuning in here and you liked what you heard and like to engage further, of course, you can do this through our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. We got them all. Well, all life's a stage and this plays over for another session. Thanks for joining us in Higher Ed Heroes and we look forward to your company again. 